our family minus our sons, they were both in school, but Dana, my wife, and my daughter Betsy and I, our daughter Betsy and I, uh, took a trip to Washington, D.C. this past spring break. And it was my wife's first time to go. I had been a few times before, but it was fun to see it through her eyes, seeing it for the first time. But we went somewhere that I had never been before on previous trips, and that was the National Archives. And uh, when I told people about the trip afterward, I said that for me, if there was a wow moment in the trip, it was finally seeing in person the, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. You know, you've seen images your whole life, but to actually see them... And I don't want to elevate them to the level of the Bible, but to, you know, to think about, man, the blood that's been shed to defend what's in those documents. And the fact that still to this day, people will get on a horrible raft and take their chances to try to get to the country that um, seeks to embody those documents. I want you to picture this. And by the way, if you've never been to the National Archives, I mean, you don't just walk in and they're sitting there. You have to go to the very interior of the building. You actually step up onto a raised platform. It's almost like entering a temple, and the documents are there. They are treasures. Picture if the leadership of the United States just one day said, you know what, let's just give those to North Korea. I mean, you know, just to be magnanimous. Just, just for goodwill, let's give them the actual Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Can you imagine giving away treasures like that to an opponent? Um, or picture this, if you've seen the, the procession of people walking past the Queen's coffin right now in London at Westminster Hall, as, as her coffin is lying in state on top, her crown, and then the two objects that she's holding in the, in the classic coronation portrait of Elizabeth. It's her scepter and this orb with a cross on top. It actually is an image of the earth and Christ reigning over it. So the crown and the orb and the scepter sitting on top of that pulpit, you know, true treasures of the United Kingdom. Can you imagine them saying, hey, let's give those to Afghanistan. Actually, let's give those to the Taliban. Just to be magnanimous. In the passage that we're about to read, Paul essentially is going to say, God has an ultimate treasure, and I'm the opponent that he gave it to. So in this uh, comparison, I'm not the UK, I'm not the US, I'm the enemy, to whom he gives his greatest treasure. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions 
of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that the words of my mouth... And the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. I heard a presentation a few years ago by an author. And she had experienced quite a bit of success with one particular book. In fact, that book was turned into a movie, which is extra big time success for a writer. And so she gave a presentation about the plight of people who create for a living. Writers, actors, musicians, visual artists. And she said, it just seems like in no other guild do people expect you to self-destruct the way they do for creators. You know, she said, before I wrote this book and I met with this visible success, but people knew that I was going to be a writer, they would say things like, what if you never make it? I mean, what if you write and write and write and nothing is ever famous and nothing makes any money? She said, I don't think we talk that way like to accountants. Uh, but then she did experience that success. And then on the other end, she had people saying, now, what are you going to do now? I mean, like, how can you ever top that? That book sold so many copies, they turned it to a movie. Are you afraid that you'll never meet with that much success again? And so it really got her thinking about, man, my, you know, my fellow creators, we, we do have a terrible record of self-destruction. Um, you know, there's an there's, there's a awful club of rock musicians who OD'd at 28. Something about 28. Uh, suicide would be the ultimate. Lots of, uh, lots of abuse of substances. So she said it got her thinking about how have older cultures, I mean going way back, how have they thought about how to navigate being a creator without self-destruction? And where it took her was back to ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and she talked about how they talked about like being under the influence of, the way we would have heard it would be the muses. Like an unseen being who's acting upon you, and so you're able to write poetry or write music or perform or create something beyond yourself. Now, I'm not advocating for that because what she's drawing from is ancient paganism, classical paganism. 
And she said the interesting thing is that when, when you look at art, and it was amazing. She's giving this presentation in a you know, not-so-spiritual setting, but she's advocating in some ways for the supernatural. But when an artist perceives that he or she is under the influence of something outside of themselves, it doesn't make your life a pressure cooker. So if it goes well, you don't become too inflated. If it doesn't go well, you're not destroyed. And I thought about that even though she's drawing from ancient classical paganism, she's bumping up against something that scripture would agree with, and it's this. If you think that the thing that's the most special about you found its origin in you, you'll self-destruct. Now, I don't know what you think is most special about you. I mean, if I were to ask you, what's most special about you, I'd probably get a lot of all shucks, like, oh, now, you know, nothing. But I tend to think that a lot of us think there's something special about us. So what what would you say is most special about you? Uh, Maybe for many people in this room, it's not artistry, although we've got some great artists. But it might be your work ethic. Your diligence. uh, Your conscientiousness. Your commitment to excellence. Where do those things find their origin? Uh, did they come from you, or have you been acted upon? There's actually a place in another one of Paul's letters where he says this. What do you have, and the you is anybody, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not? And the reason that Paul could write sentences like that is that he, he viewed himself as ex- exhibit A. That in this remarkable way, the very things that he's making loud and clear in Galatians, namely, what is the gospel and what is not the gospel, but importantly, what is the gospel, first thing. Second thing, why do I have the right as an apostle to write you Galatians and speak into your lives and tell you what is and is not the gospel. The gospel and Paul's status as, as an apostle were technicolor demonstrations to him that I was acted upon. These don't find their origin in me. So he uses the language of something being revealed to him. And I want to I wanna use that as sort of a, a, a prism to look at this passage. So let's think about this. If you have a revelation... There has to be a revealer. So let's think about the revealer of the revelation. Then the waiting after the revelation. And then the message of the revelation. All right, the revealer. And then the waiting afterward. And then the message. So who's the revealer? And Paul is really explicit here. He says, first, first. Well, not first in the passage, but I'm going to start with it. It's. Definitely not my background, Paul's background. It's definitely not Paul's upbringing. Look at what he says starting in verse 13. You have heard of my former life in Judaism. Now, let me pause there. I didn't realize this until studying for for this sermon. That This is why it's great that there are scholars that track this stuff down. You and I are accustomed to the title or the term Judaism. 
So we would just think of that as a world religion like Islam or Christianity. That was not a common term in the first century. And typically the way it was used would be to identify somebody, not just who adheres to Jewish thought and culture, but somebody who zealously defends the Jewish way of life, a zealot. That would be somebody who participates in Judaism, according to that term. So let me read it again. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism, uh, Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So in other words, believe me when I say this doesn't come from anything in my upbringing. And before I go to the next thing, by the way, that's why in verse 10 he says, do you think I'm trying to please people? Do, do, do you think anything I'm doing or writing to you is to please people? If I were trying to engage in people pleasing, I would have stayed on the career track that I was on. Because what, I, what I've invited into my life is massive opposition. I'm not trying to please people by following Jesus. So it's not my upbringing. But then he says this. It's not any other person on the earth. Go to verse 11. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, when Paul says that, that's almost like when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you. Like, listen up. This is important. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Now think about what he just said. Every person that I'm looking at right now who would profess to be a Christian today, I'm not assuming that's you if you're visiting, but there are a lot of people in the room that would profess to be Christians. How did you come to knowledge of Jesus Christ? Either someone taught it to you, or you opened the scriptures yourself and got it from the Bible directly. But in other words, you, you were taught it from someone else. Paul says, that's not how I received what I received. So, the revelation came from somewhere else. Okay, so who's the revealer? Look in verse 15. When he who had set me apart before I was born. Now Paul is describing his own life like an Old Testament prophet. Before I knew what I was going to do with my life, actually, when I, w- when I knew what I was going to do with my life, and it was something very different, God, who made me, who rules the world, He set the trajectory of my life. He called me to do what I'm doing right now, even though prior to this, I looked like I was 180 degrees going a different direction. Verse 15, when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, here's what may have just happened. I just posed a you know, rhetorical question. Who did the revealing to Paul? And there's enough people with Bible background in the room, and just having heard the passage, a bunch of you just went, God... God, you're right. But here's the thing to think about. 
Do you want to give your treasures to people who hate you? Do you want to give what is nearest and dearest to you to the person who most violently opposes you? There's a place in another one of Paul's letters where he writes, While we were still enemies. He means with God. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. When we were opposed to him and did not reach for him, he reached for us and drew us to himself. Why would you move towards someone who's persecuting your followers? And persecuting those who are trying to spread the good news of your son. Why would God reach for Paul? And Paul would be the first to tell you, I have no rational explanation. Here's all I know. Is what I learned in the scriptures growing up. And that is that God is gracious and compassionate. And he's slow to anger. And abounding in love and faithfulness. And he maintains love to thousands and he forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin and he revealed his son to me so that I could tell not ethnic Jews about it the apostles had already been doing that but now go big and tell the Gentiles and by the way I'm looking at a room full of people that are I would assume not mostly ethnically Israelite looking at people whose ancestors come from Germany and Germanic tribes and Celts, Picts, African nations, pagans. Because God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love to people in Greenville in 2022. So much so that he reveals his son to a man who's been a sworn enemy. So that not only he can believe it, but he can preach and write things down. So that we are the beneficiaries. Because God is love. And he's the revealer. What about the waiting? I'm going to be quicker on this one. The waiting after the revelation. Look at the second part of verse 16. He says, all right, so, so God bursts in. He reveals his son to me when all I was doing was opposing his son and anybody that followed his son. He says, when that happened, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Let me pause there. In other words, when I became a Christian, what you'd think I would do would be to make a beeline to Jerusalem. That's kind of headquarters for Christianity. Headquarters of the apostles. Go there. Learn. Meet. Fellowship. Reflect. Process. He says, I did not do that. But, verse 17, continuing, I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, that is one of the most mysterious references in the New Testament. It is shrouded in mystery. I'll, I'll share this with you for no extra charge. 
in chapter 4 of Galatians, the only other reference to Arabia. I mean, isn't that mysterious? Paul went to Arabia. It doesn't have the same borders now as Saudi Arabia. For no extra charge, we don't know that this is the case. But the only other reference to Arabia is in chapter 4 of Galatians. And he says that's where Mount Sinai is. And we don't know. We can't be certain. But could it be that in the site where God came near to man and revealed himself, revealed the Torah that Paul had grown up trying to follow and obey? Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, where the prophet Elijah had amazing experiences. Did he go there to say, if I'm going to process this, I'm going to, I'm going to ground zero. We don't know. Maybe. But he went away. said, I returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him 15 days. All right, what, what, what's the big point? Here's the big point. What did he do during that time? What, what, what did his processing look like? We don't know. Here's what we know. He did not immediately start churches. And here's why that's interesting. Um, some of the worst mistakes that Christian individuals, especially Christian teachers and preachers, and Christian ministries make, some of the biggest mistakes we make are like in the two to three year window after we become Christians. I would tell you in my own life, as a teenager, not yet a preacher, some of the worst mistakes I made with peers and with family were in that two or three year window after I became a Christian. Some people have actually called that the cage stage. Believe in Christ and let's hide you away for a little bit to say and do all the weird things you're going to do and then we'll bring you out to represent Jesus after that. I'm not saying that's always how it works. But um, here's how Flannery O'Connor put it, the Southern writer Flannery O'Connor. She said that conviction without experience makes for harshness. Conviction without experience makes for harshness. Now, Paul had some experience. He was a man. But when God came near and gave him eyes to see and ears to hear, he went away. He's talking with people along the way. He's sharing about Christ on the way. But before he really puts his apostle's hat on and starts churches and goes on missionary journeys, he goes and sits with it. I would, I would commend to you, if you find yourself put in the role of communicating the Word of God, communicating the gospel, make sure you have sat with it first. But Paul's converted, receives this revelation, and then he waits. By the way, who would have thought that not only is God going to use the gospel that was revealed to you, but your upbringing? He's even going to use your opposition to him to give you credibility. Did you hear what he said? When, when the Judean churches, they hadn't met me yet. They had been persecuted by me. But when they heard that I was a follower of Christ, that I was a Christian, I was preaching the faith. Man, they glorified God. They didn't glorify Paul. They glorified God because of me. Because they, when they heard that, they knew, whoa, if God saves Saul slash Paul, he might save anybody. And apparently, he must want to save anybody. But God even redeemed his background. 
I met someone just recently who is planting a new church in West Greenville. And there's an entire pattern in his family background of addiction. And he himself had experienced addiction. And God came near and burst in and rescued him. But guess who he knows how to talk to? Guess where he finds traction in his outreach for Jesus? Addicts. That God's not only using the revelation of the gospel to him, but even his own background. God can use your gigantic, treacherous mistakes even to help communicate his gospel. You may have to wait to figure out how. Lastly, and in some ways the main point, the message of the revelation. So, there's this revealing, but let's just really be clear. What is the, what is the thing that God reveals to Paul? Now, this is where it may sound like heresy, what I'm about to say. What God reveals to him isn't even what we would call Christianity. Christianity comes from the Word of God and the Gospel. But Christianity is our response to the Word of God and the Gospel. And sometimes we like how Christianity looks and sometimes we should not. And the church over 2,000 years has done some awful PR work. And we have been involved in it. So what is it that God reveals to Paul? Look at how he says it. In verse 16, well, let me back up. Verse 15, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach. And you're expecting him to say that I might preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But he says, in order that I might preach him, preach him among the Gentiles. Paul says this in other letters. In in 1 Corinthians that he wrote. And the Corinthian church was doing some crazy things. He says, when I was with you, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's all all these corrections I could have made. There are all these strategies that I could have given you. But the one thing I determined to preach to you is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In one of Paul's other letters, he mentions Jesus. And then right after that, you can almost miss it so fast. He says, Him we proclaim. Oh yeah, you proclaim Christianity. No. I don't proclaim our response to Him. I proclaim the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. Now, when the risen Christ gives you marching orders, I'm real, I am the Messiah, go proclaim me among the Gentiles, you're probably going to go proclaim him among the Gentiles. But what motivated Paul? What motivated Paul even to be persecuted? Um, let, let, Let me think about it this way. You know, he said up there that even before I really went and sat down with the apostles and we compared notes, I went and talked to Peter, Cephas. For 15 days after I'd been a Christian for three years. Okay, I don't want to read anything into that. I labor long and hard not to read things into the scriptures. But let let me me give you an image. 
Uh, some of you may have seen a documentary that came out last year that got a lot of attention called Summer of Soul. Uh, you know Questlove? He's the drummer on The Tonight Show. He, he, uh, I believe he either directed it or produced it. He essentially unearthed this archival footage of an event that happened in Harlem in 1969. It was called the, the Harlem Cultural Festival. It was mostly a musical festival. And this footage is amazing. And it was essentially socked away for half a century. Well, the documentary ends with a performance. And I, I don't even know how to convey this to you verbally. But this is not in like a nice concert hall that's climate controlled and you can change the lighting. And This is outside on an open, not great stage under the blazing sun in the summer. The last part of the documentary is a Sly and the Family Stone performing. And they perform a song called, Want to Take You Higher. And I'm just going to tell you, I don't know your taste, but like when you go to a concert and you sort of hope it happens, it happened when they sing this song. And there's this uh, back and forth, this response to the crowd where, where he's singing, I want to take you higher, and they'll scream higher. And they actually go off the stage with the crowd chanting higher, higher. Okay, so they show you that footage. And they, they, then they cut to a man watching it now. And I believe his name is Musa Jackson. And he was at that concert when he was a little boy. So now he's in his mid to late 50s. And you're, you're, you're watching him see this thing that he saw. And so when he watches it, he gets emotional, and he composes himself, and, and he says this to whoever's off the camera. He said, I knew I wasn't crazy, brother. I knew I was not crazy, but now I know that I'm not. And this is just confirmation. And not only that, how beautiful it was. The music, the crowd of people, Everything that was going on against the cultural backdrop of 1969. And he said, I wondered if my mind was playing tricks on me. And it really is that. It was that beautiful. And again, I, I, I don't want to read in something that's not there. But don't you have to think that when Paul sits down with Peter, he says, I really didn't visit with the other apostles. Don't you think he had to say, all right, I, I just need to know this straight from your mouth. You told Jesus that you would never deny him. And then he said you would deny him. And then you said, I'll never deny you even if I have to die. And then you denied him three times. And he welcomed you back. And you know your sins are forgiven. And Peter would have had to say, that's exactly what happened. Because Paul would want to know, all right, I, I'm really about to start traveling. Is it that beautiful? And Peter could say, I lived with him three years. It is that beautiful. I know you didn't get it from me, but let me confirm to you. It is that beautiful. What does that have to do with you and I? Because we're not apostles. Let me give you this encouragement before we wrap up. 
Um, if, if you don't have church background, don't know Christian lingo, let me tell you one piece of Christian lingo. Sometimes Christians will talk about giving their testimony. And, and that's Christian jargon for, I'm going to tell you about how I became a Christian, my experience with God. And there's something that Christians are prone to do when we give our testimony is we'll slip into using the wrong pronoun or overemphasizing the wrong pronoun. Because what we're prone to do is overuse the word I. And it may sound like this. You know, I grew up in church and uh, loved it. Man, I was there every time the doors were open. But, uh, you know, I, I went to college, did the college thing, really got away from it and was going down a bad path. And, uh, but, you know, after college I met some friends and they invited me to their church and I started going and I really enjoyed it. I'm so thankful to be plugged back in. Met some amazing people, part of a really great Bible study. And, and I'm, I'm really thankful to be back in the church. I, 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 I. And you know what pronoun makes a testimony great? Paul models it. He. When I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and I could not manufacture a way out, he gave me life. So here's a great testimony. It's the one that sent Paul all over the world. I came with my death. He gave me life. I came with all my dark, wretched sin. And he cleansed me. I came with all my shame. He gave me honor. I came and wondered, could he like me? He loved me with an everlasting love. That's the gospel revealed to Paul. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, if there's anything in which we're saying I that is keeping us from you, whether as those who have not yet believed or as those of us who believe but we struggle with our unbelief. If we're saying, I'm a failure, I can't give him my sin, I can't give him my shame, that's not fair to him. Lord, would you enable us to say, he will rescue me. He will save me and go to you. With all that we are. Oh Lord Jesus, how we praise you that you are the prophet, the priest, and the king that we need. We pray this in your name. Amen.